Uh, do I need a new microphone? Do I want a new microphone? I don't need a new microphone. Hey, CNFers, here's a shout out to Athletic Brewing, my favorite non-alcoholic beer out there. If you're doing dry January, this is a, a nice way to alleviate some of those beer pangs. Go to athleticbrewing.com, use the promo code BRENDANO20 at checkout, and get a nice little discount. I don't get any money, merely celebrating a great product. And it's nice waking up on a Saturday morning without uh, a crushing headache. Skip it, man. Skip it. Yeah. I, I, you know, it's funny. As you were saying that, I was like, oh, my God. In 10 years, I could still be doing this. I hope it doesn't kill me. Uh <laughs> Yawn. You ever have to yawn and it just won't yawn? Hey, seeing efforts. It's the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, a show where I speak to badass people about the art and craft of telling true stories. Leah Satilli. Ah, oh, I love Leah. She's back on the show. You know her from the podcast Bundyville and Burn Wild. She's the author of When the Moon Turns to Blood. It is now out in paperback. I know you got a few gift cards burning a hole in your wallet. She wrote a bonus chapter for the paperback release, worth the price of admission, where she witnessed the murder case against Lori Vallow, the Doomsday Queen. I think that was her nickname. Leah's bonus chapter is pretty riveting, dark, gruesome, and a bit funny at times. A significant part of our conversation riffs. On this great list of writing trip, uh, writing trips, yeah, writing tips from Kurt Vonnegut. I have the link in the show notes to where I found this list is uh, Maria Popova's Marginalian page, and I'll put it there. It's it's well worth the read, and I use that list to prompt Leah. You know, given Leah is such a big Vonnegut fan as I am, maybe my favorite writer. I thought it'd be fun to have her riff on those points as well. It'd be wicked cool if you subscribe to the podcast and maybe even consider becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash cnfpod. Go there, shop around, see what you like, see what you don't like. Also, I've been bleeding newsletter subscribers for some reason, so if you're not already subscribed to my monthly Rage Against the Algorithm newsletter, head to brendanomero.com to sign up and also to find show notes to this episode, and at last count, a thousand others? No, it's not a thousand, but it's getting there. Nearly 400. Dang. Speaking of newsletters, Leah has a great one. The truth does not change according to our ability to stomach it. She's been doing it for a long time. Helps assuage uh, freelance income. She has some free components, but she encourages you to subscribe with dollars and cents. She writes a lot about far-right extremism, as some of you know, in the American West. She's one of my favorite people to speak to, and I just love her voice. So let's get to it. Here's Leah. Riff. As we're going to do that, that the little Vonnegut list too, which I think will be great, yeah. and then obviously cool. this bonus chapter. But I think maybe a good um, a good place to jump off might be that 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 place where you do turn in a book draft, and you're, mm-hmm. I don't know, you, you've got your feeling. You're like, okay, I've 
taking this as far as I can take it, uh, I feel maybe good about it, maybe not. But mm-hmm. then you're sitting in that space waiting for those edits. Like, what is that space like for you as you're like, all right, what what am I going to be getting in a in a few weeks or you know or whenever you <laughs> file your uh, manuscript? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I I mean I think for when the moon turns to blood, when I turn in my edits, I was like very eager to um, get them back. You know, or get, I'm sorry, to, when I turned in my manuscript, I was very eager to get the edits back from my editor, and so he turned them around really quickly. I had him back like within a month, and I was just like, "All right, let's do it. Hmm. Let's rewrite this thing right away." I just had a lot of energy for it, and I think it was because it was my first book, and I had always wanted to write a book. Um, you know, with this sort of second book that I'm was just telling you about about you know the manuscript is in right now. I turned it in early September. It's November sixteenth. I don't have my edits back, and I'm <laughs> fine with it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because I think it was really hard. Like writing a second book was much much more difficult than writing the first one. So, so you know, I think I think that's it because I feel like when I turned in the first book I was like this thing is good like I feel like ready whereas with the second one I'm like it's gonna need work a lot Mm. of work to get it to the point that I feel ready to publish it and I just think that yeah I'm just older and wiser I guess (laughs) (laughs) and and know that I'm more tired (laughs) (laughs) exactly like I'm just like I wake up I'm just like tired and sad all the time (laughs) yeah yeah I'm just trying you know tired is fine I'm I'm good with that I know I'll like it get better but I think it's just you know when you are working as a writer like you're you're always working on something or at least this is my experience I'm writing a book if I'm not writing a book I'm working on a piece of journalism or I'm teaching a class and so there's just not the pace doesn't ever really slow down for me and I think that I'm getting better as the longer I do it at realizing like if I can rest whatever I work on will be better it's just about capturing those moments of free time and and relaxation to kind of like restore yourself yeah, in what way has let's say your um, your Substack audience uh, has that alleviated some of the the flywheel pressure of of the hamster wheel pressure of freelancing? A little bit, yes, yeah, yes, it definitely has. Actually, I mean, there was a moment, you know, I'm thinking within the last probably when I started freelancing ten years ago, where I was just like pitching constantly I was pitching all the time pitching once a week maybe to an editor um it was just really and if and if I got a story I was working on it but then I was pitching someone else like it was just this kind of constant churn and at a certain point I realized like this is not sustainable like it's just not sustainable to create this much work or to have this many ideas so the Substack has been great because it allows me to kind of slow down a little and just, I, I still write at least one a month though. And there, that really, you know, there's a lot of idea generation there. I write a lot of things that I don't publish, you know, so it's still another project, but, um, but it does, you know, it, it really has allowed me to kind of take my foot off the gas a little bit and know, okay, I'm going to get some income this month from, my newsletter and that income means that I'm not, you know, turning in a story that I had to go out and report and has to go through several rounds of edits with an editor. And then I'm waiting for it to get published. And then after it gets published, it could be 30 days, 60 days, 90 days before I get a check. 
mm-hmm. all that process is sort of streamlined. So yeah, yeah, it is, it is better. I was uh, fortunate enough to just speak at a at a friend's class uh, earlier in the week. It's just a very small cohort of creative nonfiction writers, cool. and um, and kind of like not so mainly old, some like o- older people, meaning like mi- middle age and older, who are still kind of kind of like novice writers. And uh, and one of them kind of asked me, you know, if I had to kind of start all over with, you know, how would I go about the whole platform rigmarole social media you know i have my answer for that for sure which is uh which i w- wish i would have done differently for sure but that's experience but i wonder for you like going if you were go- to go back 10 10 years w- what would you say maybe you wasted time on that mm. was would have been better spent leveraging in a different direction that would have maybe you know, gotten you to where you wanted to go maybe a little quicker twitter I mean, mm-hmm. Twitter was a big waste. Of- <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, I think, you know, I say that jokingly, but I also, you know, I am, I'm able to appreciate that, like, you know, I am a squeaky wheel about certain particular subjects on Twitter. And there are people who want to hear that. And maybe they have purchased a book or subscribed to my newsletter. And so, but, you know, I think that it just sort of uh, took up a lot of brain space f- for a lot of years for me that it ultimately is like, you know, what do I have to show for, for that? You know, I think one thing that I was really concerned about when I started freelancing was what publications I was writing for. Like I would make a list and say this year, I want to try and write for X, Y, and Z magazine, mostly East coast, if not all East coast publications, ones that I felt like had a certain level of prestige and that kind of thing. And, and I really think that I understand why I did that, but most of those publications are closed or gone or they barely pay freelancers. So I think I would have probably told myself to just concentrate on doing good work and it didn't really matter who it was for. It's just about getting it out there and making sure I get paid. Mm. I think I also thought I had to work my way up in order to get paid what would be a, you know, a livable wage. And I think I just didn't value my own work for a long time and and it took me meeting enough other freelancers saying like why are you writing for that low of money and I was like oh I thought I had to (laughs) so you know I think that um you know there's there's probably a lot of different things in that that I didn't value my work in the way that I thought I could but yeah I definitely would have told myself like you can write for more money (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah it's um I I feel like I can I can speak to this particular thing because I was um I was kind of obsessed with it myself was this idea of having to build, you know, platform. You're kind of hoodwinked into thinking like you need this platform on social media and mm-hmm. uh, things will kind of take care of itself. And I think a lot of novice writers, and like I said, I can speak to this cause this is how I was doing it. Like you kind of get it backwards. You try to f- maybe build this platform on Twitter, but you don't have a body of work. So you don't really have anything to say. Whereas yeah. you should just be, putting out work, just churn and churn, like just publish, publish, publish as high profile as you can. If you can't get there, just go lower. And then linking back to your website, linking to whatever social media handle you want. Like, don't even worry about that. And the fact is you're getting better at writing. You want to write in the first place and Mm -hmm. your platform will grow just organically because you're publishing work. And I wish I had done that. Just pitch, 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 work, work, work. And then, the, the the whatever social media following would have just taken care of itself. 
Yeah, because I think I think it's so smart because, you know, tweeting like crazy didn't make me a better writer or reporter. It was just yeah. doing work. So, you know, in a way that all that stuff is really a big distraction. Like, you know, did I get work from tweets? I think I, I think I did a little, you know, did I get story ideas from people who I engage with on Twitter? I can't think of any that would stick out. So, you know, yeah, I think you're right. I think the platform thing just kind of comes later. And, and you're right, like just doing the more work you do, the more you write, it, you, the better you get. I think it's just like anything, you know, if you're a runner, the more miles you get, like you just become better at managing your time and your efficiency and how you do it. And uh, yeah, I think, I think that that can't be stated enough. And I think maybe that's what we're all learning. That's what we all have Elon Musk to thank <laughs> for, you know, is just the, it's like, Oh, maybe this didn't matter at all. Yeah, I, I think so. I've come the last few years I've come to think, I'm like, Oh wow. That it is, it is meaningless and and you're at the behest of the whims of those social media power brokers and yeah. whereas like you know you've got you know, your newsletter asset which is permission driven i have my reservations about substack on the whole um i feel like they're a social media company that is in the disguise of a newsletter company Mm -hmm. And and so I worry about them long term going slouching towards where all social media ends up going in the end. Sure. I, I, I hope it doesn't go that way. But that's just my 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 gut tells me that. Um, mm. But it's uh, it's one of those things where, yeah, it's just uh, you you build that permission asset through doing doing good work over and over again. And that's why we got into this in the first place was to do the work, not to like tweet a bunch of things. Totally. And, and, you know, and I think that it's just good for people like to admit, yeah, I got maybe hung up on like uh, mentions a little bit more, you know, and I, I think it's a human thing. Like these platforms are built to keep our attention and keep us on those platforms. And it worked, but it's sort of sad it worked for the entire, you know, publishing <laughs> industry. <laughs> I know, I know. But I think a, a good a, a good place to start for people who might be frustrated by a lack of that platform is just like okay, well, folk, you know, f focus on writing things that maybe uh, that interest you and care, you care about, and that segues into this Kurt Vonnegut list of you know he, he has a list of eight things, and we'll kind of riff on about seven of them because they uh, and uh, you know the first step is like just finding something you care about. And, uh, mm -hmm. and, and so like, just, just for you, when you're finding subjects or trying to track down ideas, like, uh, you know, you know, where are you finding ideas and how do you find the subjects that you care about? So you can really lean in with your, uh, you know, with all your, you know, your rigor. Yeah. I think, you know, for me, if I look at the entire, you know, 20 ish years that I've been writing, I think that the thing that I come back to again and again is I'm really I care about writing about people who are overlooked, you know, in some way, um, by society, by the media, you know, maybe something happened to them that got no attention or received attention, but it was kind of the wrong kind of attention or misguided or, or something like that. And even places, you know, places that are thought of as flyover country or not important or not where anything interesting is happening. You know, that is really kind of the stuff that I don't, it just, it just gets me every time. And I think that I feel excited about going to those places. Like, you know, in my book, I talk a lot about Rexburg 
Idaho. I talk about Springville, Utah. And these are just, you know, small places that not a lot of people would you know, go to unless they were passing through. And I like to go and kind of find what makes those places unique and special. So, so that, yeah, I think for me, that's the, that's the thing generally that I could say I've cared about and cared about the longest. Yeah. And, and, and true Vonnegutian wit, you know, his, his next thing is do not, do not ramble though. And he's like, I won't ramble on about that. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think that, that, that is also like on subjects too, like, there are subjects that I'm very interested in, but I also know when I'm beating a dead horse. Like I have, I, I think that like, and that gets into the rambling territory. Like if I was still several years after releasing the Bundyville podcast, if I was still writing about the Bundys, I feel like I'd be rambling at this point. So I'm kind of just <laughs> not doing that anymore. <laughs> and next is keep it simple. I heard a great anecdote years ago from a writer named Ben Montgomery, who you maybe mm-hmm. have had on the show. Jumping in for a moment, I technically, well, let's see. I have not had Ben on the show for a formal interview. Uh, he was a part of the Remembering Matt Tullis episode because he was the founder of the Gangray podcast and the Gangray long-form journalism aggregator from the early 2000s or whatever. I have his latest book, which came out a couple years ago, and I've always wanted to have him on the show as a formal interview, and uh, it'll happen. It'll happen. He's written several books. Uh, his first book was called Grandma Gatewood's Walk, and he was a writer at the Tampa Bay Times for a long time. And and Ben, I, I saw him speak, and he he talked about how you can take a moment and you can expand it into like you know a thousand words, and then you can also take you know, a uh, hundred years and, and reduce it down to one sentence. So I'm always kind of thinking about that in how I explain things. Like, how can I simplify this? Where can I take a simple moment and, and write it like crazy and, and maybe take something complicated and reduce it down to really small. So I feel like I'm doing that a lot, especially as I'm editing. And editing gets to the point of uh, having the guts to cut. And that can be, <laughs> That can be bad stuff that just needs to go anyway, but it can also be the ruthless matter of cutting things that are even that are, you know, that that are actually good. And you're like, God damn it, this it, it I like this, but it's gotta go. It's gotta go. I mean, cutting, I have to say, is my favorite thing. Like I am, you know, I think sometimes I realize the solution that I lean on again and again is like okay, cut that first thousand words. That's where the story should start. And, and I'm, I'm a lot more willing to kind of kill my darlings than I used to be. But, um, but I always feel like that's the answer. Like you really spend a lot of time kind of throat clearing before you get to the point. Yeah. And some conversations that I've had with my editor for the Prefontaine book, you know, sometimes he, he was always expressing his, uh, his concern with me is that I, I wasn't leaving myself enough time to write. Uh, which mm. and and so he's just like it doesn't like if you write you know you might write five thousand words to get to this point that but it's like those five thousand words you wrote aren't wasted and yeah. it's just yeah. like but you need to give yourself that time and that runway to get to the where you needed to go and that that can be that can be hard that throat clearing to get rid of but it's not there's no wasted word even if you cut it. 
Yeah, it's sometimes, honestly, when I cut stuff, I save it and then I use it. It becomes like a sub stack or it becomes the beginning mm -hmm. of like an essay or something like that. So I'm all about like repurposing things. I have a friend um uh the she's a novelist her name is Sharma Shields she's in Spokane she's a brilliant writer and she used to write entire novels and be like I don't like it and she'd just delete it and she'd empty trash like she was like hardcore about it and so she kind of <laughs> taught me like you just got to be willing to like kill kill off a whole bunch of words and know that there's something else ahead for you Nice. And this is one of my favorite points of uh, sound like yourself. And this kind of gets to style and voice. And what I love about your writing and the work you've done is that we will quite literally hear your voice a lot be, uh, with your audio storytelling for Bundyville <laughs> or Burn Wild. And I, I can even hear that pulse when I read your prose. So with with voice and style, you know, how did you arrive at at that, that something that felt uniquely you? Hmm. I think it was, there was a lot of experimentation that happened. You know, there yeah. were, I look back at some things I wrote when I was, you know, starting out and there, some of it's really good. Some of it's really spirited, I would say, and like very excited and eager. And I like that. And some of it's totally embarrassing and I hope no one ever sees it. But, <laughs> you know, I think that, um, for me, you know, I think if anything I write sounds like how I talk, it's pro probably because I read it out loud to myself and edited it to make it sound like a conversation. I've always been excited about writers that can, you know, write well, but also feel relatable and not be talking over people. And, you know, I don't really have that ability. I don't think I have the vocabulary even to talk over people. So I, I feel like I just try to be as relatable as I can and, and, and just, you know, be an approachable voice instead of maybe like a, you know, ivory tower, high minded voice. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And voice is uh, it's it's ever developing too. you know, you're I'm sure 10 years ago, you sounded different. 10 years before mm -hmm. that, you sounded different. 10 years from now, you're going to sound a little bit different. And, mm -hmm. you know, we're it's kind of an odd, odd question. You know, where do you see your voice going? If you can see that far into the future? Yeah, I, I, you know, it's funny, as you were saying that I was like, Oh, my God, in 10 years, I could still be doing this. I hope it doesn't kill me. Uh, <laughs> you know, I think, you know, I think that I find myself becoming and maybe this is building a little bit on like, realizing how unnecessary Twitter is, you know, that social media moment that we were all stuck in for quite a while in journalism was was really hysterical i think and really like this is what comes next like here we go you know the world's <laughs> ending and like that didn't happen and and i definitely think i indulged in that a little so i think if anything i would hope that um that that my voice becomes even more measured and uh, maybe a, more of a voice of calm and information than it has been. Um, that's, that's, you know, I, I think that's as, as best as I can predict. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And next is say what you mean to say, which I think is another way of getting at clarity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sometimes I feel like if I'm writing around something like it, it's sort of what you and I were talking about, like you got to write all these words to realize sometimes what the point you're, you're trying to get to is. So I think that saying what you mean to say sometimes comes in drafting, like you've got to like write it again and again and again to know. Um, 
I think it's also helpful for me to talk about my work in while it's in process with people I trust because they can kind of help me, you know, by, by gauging their reaction of what I'm talking about or saying like, I'm doing all this reporting and I don't really know what it's for. Like, you know, and hearing how they react to it, that, that sometimes helps me understand why I'm, why I'm devoted to a project. Cause sometimes, you know, in my work, I'm, I'm like really, really deep into something. And I'm like, why am I doing this? Like, what is this for? Why is this interesting to me? It is, I know that it's interesting. I just can't say why. So yeah. And then, and then sometimes I feel like there's for, for sure in podcasts, it, it works, but definitely also in books is like, sometimes it's just nice to like, get to the end of a paragraph of information and there's just a sum up line that's like, here's what all this means, colon, you know, <laughs> and just say it. So, yeah. And uh, the last point we'll hit on is, uh, of course, pity the readers. And how? When, at what point does the audience come into your picture? I think that's a good question. I mean, I think that it, it, it makes me think about endings and how endings are something I feel like I'm always arguing with other writers and editors about like, what's the ending? You know, I think there's this compulsion sometimes with writing that you're supposed to end on a high note, you know, let's uplift at the end. Let's not leave everybody, you know, just like gasping for air. Um, and I don't always agree with that. Like I do like a movie where there's a gut punch at the end and you feel kind of devastated by what's happening. Um, so I think that, you know, pitying the readers doesn't necessarily mean to me that you need to make them feel better about everything that they just read. It just means like maybe there's a call to action in some way, or maybe you really deliver in your final scene in such a way that, um, is satisfying and it maybe feels like a good, difficult, you know, criterion collection movie at the end. <laughs> you know, I, I think that, I think that's what I think of. I think it's cause I don't want to be talked down to as a reader myself. So, um, so yeah, but I also am really, I, I, I hope that my work doesn't ever feel like it exhausts someone. Like I want them to know if you get through this information, I will ultimately give you something satisfying afterwards. Nice. Yeah. The, the ending of Bundyville too, like I felt like had that kind of a, it was very ominous and the score that was coming in too, that was just kind of hitting this crescendo and your writing was just like right with it well the music was matching the crescendo of your writing i should say and it just thinking about it like i quite literally get chills thinking <laughs> just about the the mood you evoked through that mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i mean and all of that was really real i mean the the beauty of that was uh that robbie carver who wrote the music for bundyville like he would listen to the narration and and kind of write along with it and write based on what he thought it needed. And I, you know, obviously trusted him to do that, but you know, there, there were moments where we were doing the narration for that show and I was crammed in a recording studio with two producers sort of lording over my shoulder. <laughs> and I, you know, would feel myself get really fired up as I was reading it because they want, and, and they allowed me to do that. I think in a lot of radio spaces, maybe that wouldn't be accepted. But to me, it was like about showing someone like, Hey, I can tell you all this stuff as an unbiased journalist, but at the end of the day, like I'm a person in this society and this is upsetting. And so I'm going to share that with you. And it, clearly it resonated, you know, to, to be like, this is, this is really sad. And we all have to think about how to reckon with this. 
Nice. And as we kind of turn our attention to your, you know, when the moon turns to blood in your, you know, the your bonus chapter here mm-hmm. too, I I wanted to get a sense, given that you're you know, a bit removed from the initial publication of it, you know, what was your sense of how it was? Uh, received or perhaps mischaracterized because I, I get the sense that maybe a lot of people thought it was like, oh, a true crimey thing, but it, it really it gets into this you know religious extremism and uh, I think maybe could be mischaracterized as true crime even though there's true crimey elements to it. Right, like I wanted to not be seen as true crime, but at the end of the day, I understand why it is true crime. Like it, there is there is a lot of crime in it there there are bodies like that's difficult for me to say but it's not all true crime like um I think that you know the perception of the book I mean I I think I only know what I've what people have have shared with me you know I think that there are some people who who say you know I never would have cared about this case and you made me care about it and to me that's like that's great. That's exactly what I wanted to do. Um, there are other people who knew every single little detail of the case and found the book maybe to be unsatisfying. They thought it was going to add more to what they already knew. So, you know, I think at the end of the day, I when I pitched that book, when I wrote the proposal in early 2020, I wanted to cover the trial. And that trial got delayed and delayed and delayed because of COVID, because of, you know, all kinds of different issues that I bring up in the book. So, you know, when it came out, I was happy with where it ended, but I thought, man, if I, if this thing ever goes to trial, I'm, I know I'm going to have to go. I have to be there. I never had sat in the same room as these people. Like, so ultimately, you know, I brought that up to my editor on the book and he was like, yeah, like, let's write a new chapter. It'll come out in the paperback. And I I thought, I mean, that is a really cool opportunity that most authors, I would say, probably don't get. But to me, with that extra chapter, it like is finally the like I'm delivering on what I essentially wanted to do when I pitched it. So take us to the just what you're feeling as you know, as Lori goes to trial and you are going to be able to zip over to Idaho and sit very in clo- very close proximity to the to this person and, and and witness this trial. Yeah, I think that um I really wanted to continue the voice that is it that is in this book of like you know, it's it's not just observing the trial itself, it's observing the people observing the trial and the kind of entirety of the situation. So so I wanted to go and see, you know, what kind of circuits there is at this point in in time when when Lori's trial happened last last uh, winter. It was one of the most high profile criminal cases I would probably say happening in in the country. The other one was the first criminal trial of Donald Trump, and which was starting on the same day. So, so I was really kind of taken by you know that this world of religious extremism was sort of, you know, was certainly not started by that president, but it was definitely, you know, those, those flames were fanned by him. So I thought that that was a really interesting moment that Lori Vallow and Donald Trump would start their trials on the same day. Um, and, and in really different situations. So I wanted to be there. I wanted to see, you know, the people who showed up of which I, I just couldn't believe there were people from all around the country who had come to Boise to observe the trial 
you know, they weren't relatives. They didn't have anything to do with the case. They just cared a lot about it. So yeah, I started talking to those people and wanting to know why they were there. And then ultimately I went to Boise twice for the, for the trial because I, you know, I couldn't stay permanently for eight weeks. Um, but, but on the second time I went, I wanted to sit in the courtroom. I wanted to sit in the same room as Lori and, and I sat right by her and, You know, I think I just it's it's so even as a journalist, I've written about so many kind of notorious characters over the years. And there's always something surprising about when you are finally in the room with them or talk to them. And, you know, obviously I couldn't talk to her, but I was just so surprised with that. She was just just this tiny woman and um, and and she was just so much smaller than than anybody who could have ever described to me. And I think that her her size sort of was a little even surprising for me um given the the true nature of of her crimes and the size and scale of which this one person could commit you know i think you know even right in the chapter there were moments where i just kind of look at her and just sort of wait for something to like you know some sort of sign that this is person is like dark in the inside and 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 you know in some way and you know obviously that never came and that's part of what i write about in the book that like Lori Vella looks like the most normal person in the world. And that's part of why I think she was able to deceive people in a way that was just so over the top. Yeah, there there are moments in the final chapter too that I found like actually kind of kind of funny. Like this like the the with the the lawyer who's just like, you know, I've been assigned to 27 murder cases over the course of my career. I was assigned to this case. And you wrote, it was hard to tell if he was trying to drum up sympathy for himself or explain why his client even had an attorney at all. And I just like, I just, that for some reason, the the image of that, just like he was trying to drum up sympathy for himself. I felt that too. And it was really, I just found that hilarious. I mean, I appreciate that. I'm so glad to hear that because like you're, you're probably one of the first people I've talked to about this chapter. And like, you know, I really feel like if something sounds like me, you know, back to the Vonnegut advice, I, it should be both dark and funny because I think that that's, at, that's kind of how I see the world is I'm always trying to hold this stuff in my head that, you know, so much of the work that I do as a journalist is in really dark spaces. And yet then I look at my life and there's all kinds of wonderful things happening and there's good stuff all around me. So how do you hold space in your head for bad and good at the same time? And and so there, I, and I think like any trial that I have reported on, of which there are many, there, there are just these kind of moments of humanness and levity that I think are sometimes worth pointing out. But then there's also stuff like that that's just a little bit pathetic. Like, what? Like, you're supposed to be up there defending your client. You're like sort of talking like, don't get mad at me for being a lawyer. <laughs> yeah. I have to point that out. Yeah. He's just like, I, I, if, if I had my way, I wouldn't be here, everybody. Right, right. <laughs> Yeah. And then even later in that chapter, too, when there was a break, you know, you and a fellow journalist go and get coffee and you it's like the meaning of life blend. And you're like, it felt like a joke from the universe. What is the meaning of any of this? Because we knew what was coming right after that. We were about to see some horrific. I mean, truly, 
to this day, the her most horrific thing I've ever seen in my entire career as a journalist. And, and we knew that was coming and it just felt like, all right, we're eating lunch because we have this time. No one's hungry. And, and I go over and fill this coffee and I'm just like, yeah, I don't know what the meaning of life is. Like, I don't even know why I'm here at this point. This is so sad and, and, and crushing. And so, yeah, yeah. I try, I try to notice those things. I mean, maybe it just helps me process things a little better. Yeah. And given the nature of the images that you saw and you you evoke the the Joan Didion documentary of mm-hmm. the of the the little girl who is you know given LSD you know whenever this was back in the 60s and like mm-hmm. Didion was asked about that and she like she's like it was gold and yeah, she's almost like seething. Like she, well, I remember watching that. I'm like, oh my god! Like, she, right? She is like intense about it. Like she has no qualms about that being, like, off putting, uh, illegal and weird and abusive. Like she was like, it's gold. And you're like, this you 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 flew close to gold here and like didn't care for it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that Joan Didion is the reason that I decided to become a narrative journalist. You know, but I was like. 20 years old when I I wanted to do that, you know, two decades on from that, I I could see now, like, you know, it's like anybody that inspires you at a certain point, you're like, wow, okay, I might not have the same take on things that that you do. And, you know, I still think Joan Didion is great in many ways, and and very flawed in, in, in many ways. And, I think in that moment, it, I thought of her saying that this is gold, you know, this is the kind of thing like you work your entire career for. And I'm like, man, when you see gold, it is just sad and sobering. And you as a person have to either detach yourself completely and just be the journalist, just writing things down. But for me, it's just, I think there's a certain point where I, I just, you know, I, I, the notebook doesn't matter anymore. I'm just like, this is terrible. and And I feel like Maybe that's where my voice comes in differently than other reporters, as I'm willing to say, like, this has made me deeply sad. Yeah, you, you're right. If this was what gold was, I didn't want its luster anymore. Mm-hmm. And I mm-hmm. could, yeah, I could just feel the, the, the weight of it and just like the, you know, the, it's almost like the career you've chosen. I'm like, this, you know, and this is, oh my God, this is where I'm left at the end yeah. during this trial. You're like, oh, damn you know you feel I mean, you kind of feel yeah. the weight of it yeah totally I mean I got home from that week and I just was a mess yeah I couldn't do it I couldn't I you know there's not a lot of things that can reduce me to sort of a blubbering pile but that's kind of what I was and I just was like I kept saying to you know my my family and to my husband like I, I, I don't even know what I'm doing anymore. Like, what is this for? You know, and they had to kind of keep reminding me, like, the reason you wanted to write this is because you wanted to make sure that those kids and, you know, and Tammy Daybell, that they were remembered and not just Lori and Chad. I think sometimes with these serial killer stories, you you really, like, think about it. Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, you know, Jeffrey Dahmer. People don't really remember the people they kill, but they remember everything about the killers. And so I wanted to write something that really memorialized those people and showed, like, how terribly sad this was. So... So in a way, you know, going there and seeing those things, like I, I achieved my goal, but yeah, I had some, I had some, uh, <laughs> dark nights of the soul. You might say after that being like, the, like, I, I don't know that I could do that again. When you, 
uh, you know, kind of come back from the trial and synthesize everything you've seen. Uh, it's did it in the end? Did it feel satisfying uh, for you to put this, for lack of a better term, put this bow on this story? I think so. Yeah, I think I think if I hadn't been writing the chapter, if I hadn't known that I was going there to gather material for a chapter, I might have been like, what have I done to my mind? <laughs> you know, but for me, you know, that's kind of how I process the world is that I like package it up into a story or a book or a podcast or a newsletter. And so so, yeah, I could I could do that. You know, I think the other thing that was important in my processing of that and feeling like I was really putting a bow on it was I, I started to see the ways that other reporters that were also in the, the courtroom, how they were talking about it. And it was in very much the same tone that, that I was thinking about it. So, so um, Nate Eaton from East Idaho news, he's kind of really, he's a character in, in the book and that I wrote. And he's also, you know, the man who has just kind of covered this story since the beginning he wrote, he did some really powerful broadcasts about the things that we saw in court and how that made him feel as a, as a reporter, as a father, as a, a, a member of the LDS church. I think that was really good for me to hear because it made me feel a little less like, oh, Leah, you're just being sensitive. It's like, no, that really was that bad that what we saw and that's okay. So yeah, but in the end, I, w I was, I was really happy to be able to put it all together in a chapter and finish the project. And when you see things that you can't unsee and hear things you can't unhear, you know, how did you reorient and find your bearings you know, afterward? I think in the past, there have been times I've worked on projects and I thought, oh, I'll just like muscle through it and I'm good. And then I realized like, uh, no, that's that's not true. Like that mindset that I grew up with as a young journalist is like journalists aren't affected. We don't feel anything. Just keep going. Like it's just it's just not real. And so so I knew after that that I just had to kind of take some time. You know, I wrote down a lot of those raw thoughts while they were fresh. And then I put it aside for a while and um you know, worked on other things, worked on other projects that had nothing to do with this. But I also just kind of took a lot of time. Like I actually went on a vacation for a week, which is not a thing I do a lot. And mm -hmm. just kind of tried to like be present and detach from the material. And then it made it ultimately better when I came back to edit it. Nice. And when you, you when you come down for a landing from from this, you know, there's always and you were talking about endings earlier. Uh, it's is oftentimes, you know, we'll put, especially with narrative pieces, sometimes the, the tendency is to write things in your own words and everything. But mm -hmm. in this case, you, you give the final word to, I believe, the judge. And it's uh, uh, hand, handing down the judgment on a remorseless uh, Lori Vallow. And uh, mm -hmm. just as you're synthesizing that, like, how did you know that the your guitar was in tune for that particular ending? Well, you know, it's interesting because I actually had the whole thing written before the sentencing and it was like in editing and I was just basically had left a space for how many months she got sentenced and or, you know, if she got the death penalty or actually, I'm sorry, she, the death penalty was taken off the table if she was going to get a life sentence. And so I was just kind of like, you know, I'll have that to you at the end of today after she's been sentenced. But then the judge said all this stuff that was just so powerful. And finally, this voice, you know, who's been there the whole time was able to kind of give a little bit of his own opinion and, see, you know, and admit that it was outrageous to him, too. And so I was like, 
you know, stop the presses kind of thing. Like <laughs> I have several more hundred hundred words I want to say. And, and my editors were like, yeah, that's fine. Like, let's do it. Let's do it right. So, um, so it felt better to me because it was like, uh, like I said, initially I wanted to write this book about the trial, you know, have this big trial component. So, so it felt like, okay, that's it. Like that's the ending. And in his words were so cutting and so mm -hmm. powerful that I thought I just had to, had to leave it with him. There's still the matter of Chad Daybell. Uh, mm -hmm. do, do you feel like, you know, you're, you're done or is that something you're still pursuing just because you're so tied to it? think I know myself well enough like I think there was a moment even you know far before Lori went to trial where I was like yeah I'm done with this but mm. then the trial got closer and I was like I gotta go I gotta go I'm going like I made a decision at, like right beforehand that I was gonna go and um and write you know a chapter and things like that so with Chad, you know, Chad was initially what brought me to the project was understanding his writing and his fiction and his sort of doomsday belief system I think that if it goes to trial, I would be hard pressed to not be there at least for a, a little part of it again, to, to sit in the same room as this person that I've written so much about. And, and, you know, I've talked a lot to his um, brother and things like that. And I'd like to, you know, see how the family processes these things. But, you know, as of last week, he kind of threw Lori under the bus and said, you know, she was way more culpable than me. She, you know, uh, used like sexual manipulation to make me do things. And, and so I think you should take the death penalty off the table. So, you know, to me, that says maybe this thing might end up going, not going to trial, or it might end up having some kind of a deal that that's, that's pulled. So, um, yeah, I mean, that's the long answer, but I think if it does go to trial, I'll probably want to be there for at least for a little bit of it. Oh, very nice. Well, well, Leah, this is um, always great to catch up with you about, um, you know, writing and freelancing and just uh, your, your approach to these kind of things. And I'm excited that you that people are going to get this extra bonus for the paperback uh, edition. Yeah. yeah. And uh, as you know, as I like to end these conversations, uh, I still like to ask uh, guests for recommendations of some kind of, uh, you know, anything you're excited about. So, uh, you know, what do you what do you want to recommend to the listeners? Oh, yes, that's right. You do do that. Okay. Um, <laughs> what am I into right now? Okay. So I'm really into renting movies. Like, and I don't mean like digital movies. We have in Portland, a movie store called Movie Madness, where they have like hundreds of thousands of DVDs and Blu-rays and VHS tapes. Nice. And I have almost exclusively been renting DVDs and I don't know what it is. It's like bringing me back to like when I was a kid and going to the movie store and like looking at all the covers and finding weird stuff. So if there's a movie store where you live, I'd say support them, but also, yeah, getting your hands on physical media is, is still very satisfying <laughs> and yeah. I encourage it. <laughs> yeah. The Eugene public library here downtown has uh, an extensive yeah, DVD collection of which or Blu-ray collection as well that, uh, that's uh go we that's that's where I get most of the movies I watch. So yeah, you got to do go. it. It's yeah. great. It's so satisfying in a way that's like hard to put put my finger on. You know, if you live in Bend, you've got the last blockbuster video, I guess. So yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It, the people who know know. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, this is great, Leah. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. This was awesome. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. 
Hey, thanks to Efforts, and thanks to Leah for coming back on the show. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you choose to listen to them. And if you care, ratings and reviews help validate the enterprise for the wayward CNFer, just like you were at one time, Lauren. Here's a bit of a coincidence. Leah's recommendation was to find a place to rent physical DVDs or Blu-rays and might riff. Today has lots to do with finding the love of physical media. And I'm not bitching about the usual stuff today. I, I get the appeal of uh, stripped-down spaces. I'm prone to clutter buildup, so the fewer things I own, the less likely it is I get myself into an untenable mess. A Gordian knot of bullshit. I love giving books away instead of keeping everything. I like giving books another life instead of gathering dust because what's the likelihood I'm going to read or reread Novelist as Vocation by Murakami? Very unlikely. I like the book. It's still on my shelf. But I'm probably not going to reread it. If I w- I'd rather like maybe donate it, and if I want to reread it, I'll probably just go to the library or something. Uh, so it'll either be given to a friend or put in the CNF in Little Library or other little free libraries in my neighborhood. There are about four that I know of in my uh, neighborhood. I don't know, a couple square miles. There have been a few essays written lately, most notably by Richard Brody of The New Yorker, about keeping physical media, like movies. You know, streaming platforms can deplatform items. They have expiration dates. They can edit things from the original. And there are never any you know, bonus features and DVD extras. And that's the key. As writers, you know, listening to filmmakers talk about cuts and edits is the best part for me in so many ways. The DVD commentary for deleted scenes on the Pixar movie Ratatouille is awesome. It is priceless. Brad Bird, the director, he talks about how brutal he had to get with certain scenes. An exercise in killing our darlings. It's quite good. Uh, but also, and here's the kind of the bad side of it. Like DVDs are yeah, a lot of plastic. You got the case, you know, it comes in shrink-wrapped, and then the case is all plastic. And they can be expensive if you... You know, buy a movie you haven't seen and you don't like it, you're either stuck with it or you have to donate it or you're out like five, ten to twenty-five bucks. You know, I really want to see Oppenheimer. I'm eighty-sixth in line at my library. Uh it's not at Redbox. And I know Max or I think it might be on oh no, you have to rent it through Prime. I'm not a Prime member. Um, but I think you can buy or rent it through that. And I mean it sucks. If you didn't see it in the theater and you don't subscribe to Max, then you're kind of screwed. Um, I didn't get get a chance to see it in the theaters, but I do love Christopher Nolan's DVD commentaries about his movies. I like how he thinks about story and structure. He talks a lot about that stuff, and it's always really helpful for me. And same with Wes Anderson. You know, there are two copies of Asteroid City at the library that are not taken out. So after I'm done with this, we're gonna we're going down to the library and we're gonna. We're going to pick up Asteroid City and watch that this weekend. I like rewatching Anderson movies a lot, so I'll likely buy it if I really like it. And I think it's supposed to be pretty good. I'll probably like it, and I'll probably buy it. Gosh, and books. Ah, oh, man. They are they are expensive and bulky. Well, let's take vinyl or even CDs. Again, kind of get, getting kind of bulky. Uh, but... Isn't it great that you don't have to rely on an algorithm from a company that rips off its artists? 
When was the last time you sat in one place and listened to a record beginning to end? I mean, and if you do remember it, and I remember... I've done it recently because I have a few Metallica vinyls. I don't have a whole lot, but I have some Metallica vinyls. But I've met some of my best memories are, um, I don't know, 15 years ago or so? Yeah. yeah my friend uh, Nate, who was a sports writer at a newspaper we were both at, and uh, we just stayed up late listening to, like, Tool albums, you know, drinking Budweiser and eating ramen and air drumming. And I don't know. It's, it's some of the best memories I've had. Beginning to end, just digesting that music if you have the space getting back to analog ah, it's it's just the best getting off our devices as best we can it's taking back some agency it's how we find other ways to rage against the algorithm we're not being fed something you know be it spotify be it instagram you know i'm thinking now, now that I think about it, I'm thinking that this little this little thing here, I'm going to flesh it out a little more, and I think it's going to be the February newsletter riff. So if you're not already subscribed, uh, go subscribe to the newsletter. And if not, well, whatever. You, you just got yourself an early access, a little look behind the curtain to what might just be February's riff and Rage Against the Algorithm newsletter because it's very ragey. It's very ragey, and I like that. So stay wild, CNFers. And if you can do, interview. See ya.